Hey, good people. This is your NI Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, individuation, enterprising, and mothering. Individuation, enterprising, and mothering. Those are the three themes that I'm going to attempt to cover in today's reflection. Not in that order. Um, but the order I just gave it to you is really how I want to frame the entire conversation, individuation, enterprising, and mothering. I have three texts I'm going to be reading to you today. So it's going to be a lot of reading, but it won't be, I, I think the reading will take up maybe about 25% of the reflection, 30 at the most, but I wanted to give you the heads up that there's going to be a lot of reading about those three topics. I am back to continue a theme that I've I've, uh, attempted to address two times this season so far. I did an episode, um, I believe August 18th or August 16th, I'm not sure which the date is, that was entitled Truth. And then I did an episode two weeks ago, October 8th entitled Confronting the Hidden. And in both of those episodes, I'm trying to grapple with a thing that I have experienced historically and due to the illness of a family member. It is a thing that is resurfacing. So it has present day relevance. And in its present day mode, um, I have found myself going back to the historical experience, just trying to wrap my mind around it. And um, it is one, it's a topic that, like most topics for me, I need to flush out. I need to get inside of it. I need to interrogate it for myself so that I can truly understand and accept it and move on. And in each of the episodes that I attempted to tackle this topic, which I, I, I'm, I don't regret that attempt. But there is, I end those reflections feeling like there's more to process. And I think what it is at this stage of the, of me returning to it for a third time, I think for me, it is about the, the significance of, of the event. So I'm going to say capital S significance and lowercase significance. There is lowercase significance in the event, but we live in a society that downplays the event when it's at a lowercase S status. And then over time, those lowercase s significant events will culminate into a major event or phenomenon with a capital S. And that is when we give it attention. Finally, our society has evolved to finally give this thing attention once it hits capital S status. But as long as it resided in lowercase s, we have an interesting way of sanitizing it 
justifying it, ignoring it, working around it. And I am going to finally confront the, the lowercase and the uppercase S significance of the significance <laughs> of the significant level. And I'm going to do it by finally talking about recall in a very detailed way. All right, so I have three articles. You guys, I am running out of time for my disclaimer. So let me just say this. If you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I have a number of other disclaimers that I don't have time to share. But if you want to know more about this project or me, feel free to go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. Com. The one thing I do need to say is that this project is unedited and it's unscripted. Okay. All right. I still made it into the five minutes. So I'm going to attempt to talk. I think what has been challenging me as I attempted to confront this theme is on the treatment of significance that I'm living with the capital S significance of it. But in order, but I'm, I'm not fully confronting that or integrating that truth into my sense of self, my reality and all of that. And so it is a theme that is, that needs to be addressed. It really does. I'll also say to you that, um, I recorded this episode yesterday and it took me three attempts. The first attempt, I got 50 minutes in and I realized I was doing a lot of gibberish, a lot of um, side chattering about other events. And I do, I've learned that when I start talking continuously about other unrelated events, it's because I'm having a hard time really connecting to the theme. So I said, nope, we're not doing that. I deleted that 50 minute episode and I tried it again and then I got six minutes in and I was so into setting it up that I violated my five minute rule around my disclaimers. So I deleted that one and then I recorded for an hour and 28 minutes. And, you know, I, I feel that it could have been better, <laughs> but it was, it was, I mean, it's like any of my other episodes for an hour and a half. You know, I take the windy road and, and that's fine for some of you. You're okay with it and you're okay with it. I'm okay with it. And then I hit the publish button. This is yesterday, y'all, last night. And then I checked to see if I had any plays on it. And I didn't. I was like, okay, I'll wait. And then I realized, I said, no, there were no downloads. I said, why is that? So then I went to go look at like a list of all of the episodes that I published and that wasn't showing up. So the reason why I wasn't getting downloads is because it didn't publish. And I really felt like I published it. So I didn't want to publish it twice. I said, well, maybe there's a, some kind of glitch happening. So I went to bed and I woke up this morning and it's still not showing up. It's published. So I took that as a sign that either I'm not supposed to talk about that in this project, or I need to do it. I need to be a little bit more concise. So I'm back to try to do this again 
for a fourth recording. And we'll see. And if something happens, this time I'm going to accept that it's not something I should be putting out on a podcast. So this thing that I have experienced is with my person. Um, My person was a caregiver, my primary caregiver, and she is sick right now. She's battling a, um, a severe illness. And there's a part of me that has been wrestling with why am I tackling this historical event? Why am I, basically what I'm doing is I'm trying to reconcile the event as with capital S significance with lowercase S significance. I'm trying to reconcile that or balance it. And I'm like, why am that? So while I'm doing that, while I'm doing that wrestling, and you've heard it partially because you heard two episodes, right? I've already tried to tackle that through two episodes this season. And I think I did. I've done some splattering of other episodes. I don't really come out and talk about it as directly as I I want to. Okay. We won't. So I have tried in the past, but I would say this season I've become more direct. So there's a part of, so I've been I'm doing that re- reconciling and I'm, and then I'm like, why, why now? Why now am I trying to come out and be more di- direct? Whereas in the past I was a little more obscure, I'm a little more coded. So why now? And then the third piece of that is I, I'm really at age 52 suspecting that that experience, capital S significance and lowercase s significance, is, has had and continues to have an impact on my person, my, my set, myself, my sense of self, my individuation, my life choices. With career, actually, and how I've pursued my career. And I think that I'm not bothered by because that has benefited me. That, that experience, that, that historical experience, it's not the only thing that has influenced, but it has had a significant impact on some of my professional accomplishments. And I like it, right? Okay. But I would say in the last few weeks, if not a couple of months, I've been curious about has that event historically had an impact on my ability to love and to experience love, to receive love. And if that's the case, and if it's holding me back, then it is something I need to contend with. I need to contend with it and I need to contend with why I'm not contending with it. Why it's okay for me to stuff it into, into the recesses of my unconscious to let it sit and simmer and influence on my, on, on my wellness, on my identity, on my ability to experience and to give love. 
Why am I willing to trade those things? So I'm back. I'm back. As with other things that I have tackled in this project, I'm back to continue wrestling with it until I got it, until I get it. So let me give you a couple of examples of other themes I've wrestled with. You know this. I've wrestled with the leadership dilemma for me, knowing that I'm a leader, but knowing that when I'm in certain leadership roles, it's a conflict. Well, why is it a conflict if I'm a leader? What does that mean? What kind of leader am I? Right. So that's a theme that I've had to come back and revisit. And when I was revisiting it, that nuance that I just gave you, I didn't understand the nuance, but the nuance becomes apparent the more I come back to a theme. Another theme that I've dealt with is money. And, um, you've got, you guys have heard that. And that has been a very rich, nuance, richly nuanced theme because it's shown up as it relates to spirituality, as it relates to leadership, as it relates to survival, as it relates to the long game, masterminding, um, as it relates to my politics. And so there are a lot of little nuggets related to money that I didn't understand that I had with myself until I come coming back. And sometimes I revisit this theme called God. I'm always revisiting this theme called the INDJ and the eight. And so this theme that I have come to, I've talked about two times this season. We're in season seven and, a, and in a, in a direct way. And it's about as direct as I know how to do right now in my life. And how I have teased it, poked it a little bit in my past. I'm not done. I'm not done learning and extracting from it what I need. And so I'm back. All right. So I'm going to tackle this attempt at going to the theme about my historical experiences with this person who is now battling cancer and how I'm experiencing this person in real time and how it triggers me into the historical and it's causing a lot of confusion and guilt, fear, a lot of those emotions. I'm just trying to get my, I'm just trying to get my head around it. I mean, I think because of those emotions, they don't feel good. I think that's one of the reasons why I keep coming back, trying to tackle it, because I definitely want those emotions to go away. (laughs) But I think, I think those emotions are there because there's some learning and growing for me to do still. So I'm back. Okay. All right. So as I said in the front end of this reflection, There are three articles that I'm going to read. I think I said it in this take. I hope so. If I didn't, you know, at the risk of being redundant, let me just say. There are three articles, excuse me. There are three texts that I want to read. I'm going to be doing a a significant amount of reading, significant. Um, I would say maybe 25% of this reflection is going to be me reading three different texts. But it is from those texts that... um, uh, that I'm, I feel like I need to confront this level of the conversation. All right. Um, let me just say one other thing and then I'm going to start doing some reading. 
My last attempt at visiting visiting this theme was the episode called Confronting the Hidden. And that was October 8th. And in that episode, I I think that episode was pretty decent until I got to the end. So in that episode, I introduced the idea of the RICO charge, uh, the Georgia RICO charge for the former president, Donald Trump, and how I felt like that law or that case is serving as a metaphor to help me to explain this thing that I've experienced historically. What I hadn't done at that time is I had not studied RICO law at that time. So I was talking about the RICO law in that case is just as a person who's just been consuming the news. And I was giving to you whatever I had gleaned from my consumption of the news. That was two weeks ago. Since then, I've actually gone out of my way to learn about the RICO law. What is racketeering? What is an enterprise? What are predicate acts? Uh, and to learn more about the case in Georgia with the 19 co-defendants now down, I guess, 16, 17 or 16. Sometimes. And, and <laughs> I still, I don't have it down to a science. So like if, as I talk through it, um, when I go off, when I go off script, if you will, when I'm not reading and I'm just talking through it, if I say anything that doesn't align with what you understand, do your own homework, okay? Because I am not here, I'm not here to teach you about the RICO law, but I am here to come back to, to, um, I feel I'm, even if I don't make it clear in this audio, I feel like I really now understand why that RICO law is really popping up for me as the perfect framework to understand the events that I experience at the lower-esque level, lower-esque case significance to lead to a grand uppercase significance. And I believe that that act or that law helps to explain it. And I, I feel really confident about it now, even if I don't do a good job explaining it orally or verbally, that it is something I think I could write about with some level of rigor, if if you will, uh, I think. <laughs> so anyway, um, so let me just say last, that last episode, Confronting the Hidden, um, I introduced the RICO concept, the RICO as a framework, and I think that was all fine. And I listed 16 traits of a toxic parent, not traits, tactics, things, behaviors, actions. There it is. Actions that a parent, a toxic parent will take on their child. I listed those 16. I didn't really describe them, but I listed them. And then I said, 14 of those, I have direct evidence of experiencing. 14 acts that were found in this article. And you have to go to the episode two weeks ago. I I put it in the show notes because I don't remember. I don't remember the name of it. It wasn't an article. It was a YouTube video, I think. And the guy listed 16 acts of a, or tactics of a, or of a nurse, of a, excuse me, toxic parent. And out of those 16, I experienced 14 of those. 
But when I got to the part of the reflection where I was trying to explain and illustrate, so if one of the uh, one of the acts or tactics of a toxic parent, according according to this video, is uh, emotional neglect. And when I and I don't know if that was one that I was actually trying to explain, but as a, an example today, when I went into one of those tactics, so let's say it was emotional neglect, I couldn't illustrate it. I felt as a, and I don't, I think this is because of being a TE user and being an ain't that it felt so small that the, the illustration felt so small. I was like, why are you tripping over this? This is not a big deal. Yeah. You, yes, you experienced that, but that's not a big deal. You, it didn't destroy you, it didn't kill you. So why are you on a podcast talking about it? And then I would try to go on to another, to another tactic or another activity, such as pitchforking and cabaling. That was another act, a tactic of a toxic parent that I believe I was on the receiving end of. Then when I tried to explain that and illustrate that in my life, it felt so minor, so insignificant. And I wrestled with that. I was like, that didn't feel right. It didn't feel good to talk about. It felt petty. Like, why are you being petty? Okay. Then that's why I was like, I know for a fact that this this metaphor about the RICO charge is what I need to really wrestle with because that's it. Small acts that seem small isolated, unrelated, can be brought together for a, sig- a single significant event that is big. And at the risk of being redundant, because I've, I've tried to record this, this is my fourth time, so I, I, I'm about to say something I know I said already, whether it was in this episode or not, I'm not sure. But I'm living with the significance of something big because of the historical experience of dealing with lowercase significant events. And because they've been lowercase significant events, I didn't have the wherewithal or the gumption or the resolve to truly, truly tackle it because it's small. Not a big deal. You can overlook that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. And that's the that's that's the world I've been pinging in. I ping in that. I be I ping between those two. A slew of small, lowercase s significant events, and then the grand the sum total of a grand significance that has an impact on my person, on my sense of self, on how I move about in the world, how I work, and how I love. And honestly, I'm okay with everything, but I'm, with, I believe I'm okay. I believe. I mean, I know I have work to do, but I over, over, ultimately I believe I'm okay. But here's where I don't think I'm okay. I do think that it is impacting my love. And I, I know I said this, I think I said this already. <laughs> that 
I don't feel like I want to go out like that. I don't want that stolen from me. My right to love others in a full and healthy way and my right to be fully loved. And so I believe I said this already, but again, that is, I think that's what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for my right for love. And so at the, you know, it is, it is, it is very difficult for me to, 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 to talk about those events, lowercase s significance, significant events, because they're lowercase s, they're small. But there is a need for me to talk about them because of the uppercase significance, <laughs> uppercase s significance, significant of the, the, of the, of the events. And so that episode last week was, um, excuse me, two weeks ago, really just illustrated my discomfort, yet why I need to persist and try to confront it, okay? Confronting the hidden is what I said. And the moment I tried to really confront it, it was difficult. And I think the significance of it, of the grand, the grandness of it, obligates me to get in there and wrestle with it and revisit it and revisit it. Until I get it. So I'm back. And uh, let me start reading. Okay. I'm going to start off reading uh, about the, the Rico. The enterprising. So the three themes that I said I wanted to talk about. Individuation. Enterprising. And mothering. That's getting me into the reflection. I'm going to start off by reading an article. From the New York Times. About. And it's. it's it is what. It is what I'm, it is going to be the basis of how I explain the RICO Act as a framework. It is not the only text that I have consumed to understand. So I do have some notes that I will refer to if I need to. So I have this article and some notes in my brain. <laughs> Those three sources, okay, to help me to connect this overall reflection to enterprising and and, and RICO charges, okay. The title of the article is Trump and Allies in Georgia Face RICO Charges. Here's what that means. All right, I'm going to start reading. By the way, the author is James C. McKinley Jr. At the heart of the indictment against Mr. Trump and his allies is Georgia, excuse me, in Georgia, are racketeering charges under the, under the State Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. Like the federal law on which it is based, the state RICO law was originally designed to dismantle organized crime groups, but over the years it has come to be used to prosecute other crimes, from white-collar Ponzi and embezzlement schemes to public corruption cases. It's a powerful law enforcement tool. The Georgia RICO statute allows prosecutors to bundle together what may seem to be unrelated Crimes committed by a host of different people if those crimes are perceived to be in support of a common objective. I'm going to pause reading there and go back to that. That, that, that is a sentence, but it's, it's on this screen as a paragraph. It's a one sentence paragraph, if you will. So this says the RICO law helps to bundle un, what seemed to be unrelated crimes. Isolated crimes for a common objective 
And so as that relates to a framework that you can have these lowercase uh, significant, let's call it insignificant events. So when I say lowercase s, um, that means insignificant. All right. So you have these insignificant events, but they are significant, you guys. Even in isolation, they are, they are significant. I want to talk about why they're treated as insignificant. Okay. See, I'm the lowercase s events are significant, but our society has a way of making them insignificant by the number, the, the norms that we have, the narratives that we live by, that we we espouse and the scripts that we live by. And because of those norms, narratives, and scripts, these events that are significant are rendered to be insignificant. Okay. So let me get back to the article. And this part of the article that serves as a framework is that you can take a, a slew, a, uh, a number of events that seem isolated, unrelated, incidental, and I'm going to also add small, benign, and bundle them together to make a larger case. I got to stay here because I want to I want to make this point. Because it as I'm going to continue to read this article, but I think it's in this article when it talks about the, the case in Georgia. And if not, my notes will show it. When I looked at all nine, so there were 19, it started off with 19 co-defendants. There have been some people who've pled guilty. And so it's not 19 anymore. Okay. That's fascinating, but that's not why we're here to talk today. You take all, you, I went and I looked at all 19 of those defendants and I looked at what they did. Like what was the act that was culpable to be indicted in this grand scheme? And some of those acts were pretty small. Like had getting access into a, a system. Tinkering with some machines. Going to have a conversation with someone. A spout, saying some words, saying words, a, making assertions, a proclamation out loud. Like all of those are small events. Now, this, this is the peril, this is the value of this framework. You guys, I really, I want to make this point. All of those are small events, except they're all of those are problematic. All of those, I believe all of those acts are criminal. Uh, most of them are. Now taking a picture, okay. Some of those acts aren't, I guess all of them aren't, because I guess some of those acts are, are um, not criminal. But, okay, here it is. But they work together for a criminal activity. Oh, my gosh. It is fascinating. And so I bring that back to my situation or other people who were raised in a household where there were these little what would be considered microaggressions. Did somebody punch you in the face? No. Did someone sexually violate you? No. 
Yet you carried a lot of the markers of having been violated. One of the articles that I was going to read, that I read yesterday, but I'm not going to read today, was about how people who identify as being strong can still get into a toxic romantic relationship. And I've, I've kind of explored this before because I, had a a similar experience, you know, I was in a relationship with someone that it was, it was problematic. And you guys have heard me talk about this already. I'm not going to process it now, but like, how did I get in that? I'm a strong person. I I believe I am a strong person. (laughs) I have this deep mushy inside that you guys get access to, right? Um, But that's the mushy inside private me. I'm learning to share more of that mushy side with the world because I want, I, because I, because I do believe I'm strong and I believe in my strength. I can also handle my mushy center now. Whereas when I was years ago, I, I was afraid of that mushy center. I'm becoming more confident and comfortable with my mushy center, right? Cause ultimately I, I'm a, I believe I'm a strong person. I can handle it. Okay. So how did a strong person like me get into a situation like that? Well, this article, this content that I was taking in, and I think that's going to be in the November newsletter. And there is an October newsletter, but with me starting the business and, excuse me, re, reformatting the business and moving into that, um, I just haven't been able to prioritize the, the newsletter. So my apologies, but there is one, um, with a, yeah, anyway, there's one. So in this content, it may have been a video. It may have been a video that I do. I have saved it for the November newsletter. Um, so you guys go to my website, yourni.wordpress.com to subscribe so that you can get access to those links now because I'm no longer sharing them on Twitter. Um, sorry. In that video, the lady is explaining that a, a toxic person will be drawn to a strong person because there is something that they can sense there's a there's a crack there's a woundedness that that they can sense so even though there's strength there's a there's like an aroma <laughs> there's a an emission if you will of 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 woundedness that they will exploit and then also because they love the strength part so they love the strength and then they want to ex- they want that strength so they, they know the strength is there, they want it, and they they go to take that strength for themselves by exploiting that woundedness. If that sounds like gibberish, I'm sorry, but if you've lived that, you know what I'm talking about. All right, so that video will be in that November newsletter. So anyway, that's this whole thing of bundling these small lowercase events that are our society treats as insignificant. They are significant, though. But our society treats them as insignificant. And either way, you bundle them together to, and then you realize you, you have one grand corruption, if you will. I'm going to go back to reading, okay? 
Apparently, this is a quote in the article. It allows a prosecutor to go after the head of an organization, loosely defined, without having to prove that that head directly engaged in a conspiracy or any acts that violated state law. That quote is important because in my situation, it's important as a framework, and in my situation, the person that was responsible for these micro aggressions never did it publicly. I shouldn't say never, that's not true. Rarely did it publicly. It's only one other person that's, there are two people who've witnessed it, maybe three now, with, and, and so what it has been like for me growing up is having an experience that is invisible, that not other people can't see. And the best I can do is explain it. But when I do explain it, you guys already know, it sounds insignificant. Is minor. It could be open to perception. This are, and this is another thing that that RICO uh, law does. It allows for what's called inferencing. It allows you to infer. And in the case of psychological abuse, one of the ways it works is because someone takes away your right to infer, to make meaning, to have subjectivity. And then you, they say, no, you're not, you're not remembering that correctly. No, you're misreading that. No, you misunderstand. You misunderstood. It's a way of controlling the narrative. And that RICO charge allows for inferring, inferring, inferencing. Uh, when I saw that, I don't know where that, I don't know if that's in the article or in one of the, uh, and so my notes, okay, let me say this. You, you hear me say, I'm going to read an article and I'm going to get back to reading it. But I'm going to read the article and I have notes from other content. That other content will be in November's newsletter too. So that's already uh, forwarded. All right. So the, 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 the prayer is that I'll find a way to prioritize getting the, the November newsletter out to you. But I know if you guys, if I slip, some of you know that you will contact me on something. And I'm fairly responsive when you contact me with a need or a correction or an idea I'm pretty responsive to it. So if you find that I haven't released this, the November or the October newsletter, and you really want to just hit a sister up and, and put some pressure on me, and I'll, I'll definitely be responsive then. Because then there will be some, ex, the, exter- the external world uh, will appeal to my TE, my extroverted thinking, and I'll get it done. All right. Uh, let me keep reading. I want to read this one other quote in this paragraph. It's not related to the framework, but I just thought it was a fascinating quote. The quote says, "If you in the, in the article, if you are a prosecutor, we're talking about the RICO law. If you are a prosecutor, it's a goldmine. If you are a defense attorney, it's a nightmare. And I think I talked about that two weeks ago when, when I, in the episode uh, Confronting the Hidden. Like, like part of me watching this unfold, is, it's a little horrible. Horror, 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 horrific, because I'm like, yo, that's a that law is broad and sweeping. It's a beast, and to know that that law has been used, I believe, I, I 
I could see it being weaponized. I could see it. And so it's been a little bit difficult for me to watch that because of the power that it holds. It's almost too powerful for it to not be wicked, if you will. All right, so I'm going to keep reading now. Prosecutors need only show a pattern of racketeering activity, which means crimes that are, which means, okay, I'm going to read that sentence over. Prosecutors need only show a pattern of racketeering, which means crimes that all were used to further the objectives of a corrupt enterprise. And the bar is fairly low. The Georgia courts have concluded that a pattern consists of at least two acts of racketeering activity within a four-year period in furtherance of one or more schemes that have the same or similar intent. (laughs) All right, so there has to be two events. There only needs to be two events in a four-year period in Georgia for their racketeering law. Two events within the four-year period that relate to a similar intent. All right, let's go back to my, me using that as a framework for, I keep saying my, but anybody, anybody that has experienced this type of hidden aggression, this hidden violence, it's hidden violence, that's what it is. Anybody who's experienced hidden violence like that, this is good for you to understand. When you are wrestling with, was hidden? Did it really happen? Is it really a bad thing? Is it just me? Am I, I mean, that, those, that's the internal dialogue. That's it. If you use this RICO as a framework, this RICO law as a framework, you only need two events that have this, that relate to the similar intent outcome. And I'm going to keep reading, but I want to just say this because part of this framework only works for the intent. What is the intent? What is the ultimate objective? That's how you bring it all together. That's how you bring all those events together. All those isolated events. That's how you bundle them. You bundle them under one purpose, one intent. So what would be the purpose of those hidden acts of violence? I have, that's where I'm going to talk about mothering and individuation. Those are the other two things, but I wanted to just let you know that here, that you need two to connect to that ultimate event to bundle. All right, I'm going to keep reading. That means the act might allow prosecutors to knit together the myriad efforts by Donald Trump and his allies like Rudolph W. Giuliani to overturn his narrow loss in Georgia in the 2020 presidential race. Those efforts include the former president's now infamous phone call in which he pressed Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, to find him enough votes to win. Quote, find him and Okay, anyway, that's there's a quote around the word fine. All right, moving on. Keep I'm gonna keep reading. At its heart, the statute requires prosecutors to prove the existence of an enterprise and a pattern of racketeering activity. The enterprise does not have to be a purely criminal organization. 
In Georgia, the law has been used to hold defendants accountable for a host of different schemes, including attempts by candidates to seek or maintain elected offices, office, and efforts by school officials to orchestrate cheating on standardized tests. I don't know if I, if I said this to you in that episode two weeks ago when I introduced the RICO law as a framework, but the lady who is bringing, Fannie Willis, who's bringing this charge against Donald Trump also brought a, a RICO charge against uh, Georgia educators um, a, a, over a decade ago, about a decade ago. And I remember as an educator that, and at, you know, I was at that time as an educator, I, I was really struck by that event. Like, oh my God, like, can you, could I have been caught up in a, could I have been charged as an educator working for a district that was giving instructions on what, how to handle the test? How did the, 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 the case was about supposedly Georgia educators, leaders telling educators how to erase marks and change the marks so that they can have better scores on the test. And whoa, if people follow the direction of their supervisor because it's their supervisor, I don't think I would have done that. I, I'd like to believe I wouldn't have done it. I try to be a moral person, but morality is subjective, right? We all do things that would be, could be morally questionable to someone else. So more, the moral judgment is not a universal exclusive concept. I guess I'm saying it, if I'm saying that right. So anyway, um, yeah, so she was the person who did that. So now, so this is kind of how the RICO has been done in the past. I'm going to keep reading. Oh, no, I want to say this about that paragraph. It has to be a criminal, excuse me, it doesn't have to be a criminal organization for the enterprise to be criminal. So this law could be used for like, gangs or like organized crime but the laws the way it's written it doesn't have to be for an organized uh, an illegal organization but it could be a legal organization that will do an illegal act so i like that as a framework for my for the the, the conversation around the invisible violence because the person orchestrating that violence doesn't have to be a criminal doesn't have to be a bad guy to do a bad thing it's separating it oh god that feels good i'm having some emotions right now that feels significant the person doing the bad thing doesn't have to be a bad person and i think in our society we often conflate that now, if you do a bad thing, then you're a bad person. And I think that could lend itself to having a hard time confronting the bad thing because confronting the bad thing means I'm saying the person is bad. That might be part of my my own hang up because of my love for the person. I'm not, I just, I want to be as far away from indicting the person as possible. Yet, I'm trying to acknowledge that the, the acts were bad. You guys, I think I just stumbled on something that I didn't say in those other drafts. 
That feels pretty significant. All right, I'm going to keep reading. The sorts of crimes the sorts of crimes prosecutors could try to pin on Mr. Trump and his allies include solicitation to commit election fraud, intentional interference with performance of election duties, making false statements, criminal solicitation, improperly influencing government officials, and even forgery. So I would say that that paragraph is for me as a person that's been consuming this uh, news around this event. That paragraph is the most concise and succinct that I've heard that. Like, that's the grand, that's the grand in that case. Fraud, interference with the, uh, an election, election duties, um, criminal solicitation, forgery, like, okay. Okay. <laughs> like, so when you take those nine other 18 people doing those things that it connects to a head and what they're trying to, I think what they're trying to say, I think, I think the case is about pinning that on Donald Trump. All right. Again, I'm not here to say if it should or shouldn't happen. I'm just using this. I'm in order for me to use this as a metaphor. I got to understand. I got to understand it. I got to understand the details. All right. I'm going to keep reading you guys. The law lays out at least 40 state crimes or acts that can qualify together as a pattern of racketeering. So that, okay, I'm going to read the whole paragraph, then I'll come back to that sentence. It is broader than the federal law in that the attempt, solicitation, coercion, and intimidation of another person to commit one of these offenses can be considered racketeering activity. A number of the crimes Mr. Trump and his allies are, are accused of are on the list including make, making false statements. So what this paragraph is saying that even if they didn't do it, the attempt to do it is criminal. If they attempted to do it and it wasn't successful, if their plans to do it, the planning to do it was problematic. What I love about this paragraph as a framework for me for the work that I'm talking about, invisible violence, is that it says that there is a list of 40 crimes that would qualify together as a pattern of racketeering activities. So it makes me think about the list that I read to you two weeks ago about a toxic parent, the tactics of a toxic parent, so those 16. I wanna, I'm going to read them to you. Hold on a second. Okay, the list uh, from that article, that video from two weeks ago listed the 16 tactics of a toxic parent that I'm aligning to the 40 state crimes that could be considered racketeering, okay? So coming back to the psychology here, gaslighting, emotional neglect, stonewalling, covert put-downs, overt verbal abuse, malignant projections, sabotage, and Path, um, excuse me, sabotage, sabotage and pathological envy. Next, hot and cold behavior. Next, rage attacks, micromanaging, neglect, physical deprivation, triangulation, pitchforking and cabaling, scapegoating and smear campaigning, emotional incest and parentification. 
sexual abuse, and coercion. Those are 16 acts, tactics of a toxic parent that I listed out two weeks ago in that audio hidden, Confronting the Hidden. And that, that list is in a video <laughs> where the guy explains that. And that will be in the November newsletter. So put pressure on me to release that. But that list right there, it's, it, it makes it, I'm, I think of that list when I read this sentence here in this article. The law lays out a list of 40 state crimes or acts that can qualify together as a pattern of racketeering activity. And remember, you only need two. You only need two of the 40. So what happens? Here it is. Oh my God, this is so good. What happens when you get two of the 16? What happens when you get two of the 16? Is that enough to say? Is that enough to help understand the significance as a grand event? As a grand event to consider one's ability to love, to experience love, to be in a healthy relate, to be in healthy relationships. Uh, I think so, <laughs> but it's one that is hard for me to accept in this framework. This RICO framework is helping me out. It's therapeutic. <laughs> All right, I'm going to keep reading. I'm almost done, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm almost done. Um, Let's see. Sorry, you guys. Okay, so I'm going to keep reading. I'm reading. The law doesn't require the state to prove that Mr. Trump knew about or ordered all crimes. Just that he was the head of an enterprise that carried them out. The main defense for Mr. Trump's lawyers would likely be to show that the various actors did not intend to commit the crime. That is so relevant for the metaphor, for the framework. Because when I was a kid and I would try to explain to people about these events, the defense was from the, from my person and from other people who I said it to, there was no intention there. They're not trying to be hurtful. Oh, what I, you're being sensitive. You're just sensitive. You misunderstood or flat, flat out. That didn't happen. I don't believe that happened. Because it was it was done behind closed doors. Okay. So the RICO charge as a metaphor allows you to be able to say this is the person that orchestrated that. If you are having a hard time believing that for yourself. So I'm going to encourage you guys if kids are around, push them away for some uh I'm pausing for a second so you fast forward, whatever. Okay. But it is mind fucking. That's what it is. When you experience a thing and somebody comes back and tells you, you did not experience it. Or that you are misreading it. And what that does as a sum total event. You grew up in life and you have a hard time trusting your own perceptions, trusting your own judgments, trusting your own feelings. And that is significant. I would say in that type of culpability or, I mean, it just, it needs to be, 
addressed in your own mind, even if no one else will ever validate that. You have to be able to come to terms with that in your own mind. And I'm talking to myself as well. But I would imagine that there's there's somebody who's listening to me who who needs to hear this. And again, I believe this RICO framework helps us to be able to say if there were two or more acts in a particular window of time, That had a grand impact, uh, a grand result. You have an event. You have a capital S significant event. And one of the things I have, when I get to the other text, and I am going to be able to squeeze it in. I got 30 minutes left, you guys, roughly. And I have two other things I want to read to you. Um, and maybe I won't have to because I've been, I've kind of taken this article as I've been reading it and then expounding upon it. Uh, but the other text will explain the intentionality that there is a purpose for that psychological violence. There is a purpose for that hidden violence. But it's covert and it's hidden but it's still a reason for it all the same. There is a grand objective. All right. Let me con- let me try to wrap up this article. Okay, I'm done actually. There were maybe two more paragraphs. Um, but it's really just maybe three short, three paragraphs. And it's just really talking about uh, Fonnie Willis as the prosecutor of that case. And that's not, well, that's not relevant for this <laughs> this episode. All right, so I just read again the article by the New York Times. Um, uh, Trump and allies in Georgia face recall charges. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. And the um, author is James McKinley Jr. All right, I'm going to go on to my next text. All right, this next text is titled, I'm going to read from the book, Mothers Who Can't Love by Dr. Susan Forward. She's a PhD holder. And Dr. Susan, Dr. Ford, um, this is a book that was given to me by my therapist about five years ago. And um, my therapist actually sat on this book for a year before she gave it to me because she wanted to just make sure that it was relevant. Um, and uh, she made a two, she made, she copied two chapters for me, the the preface, or what's it called? Yeah, she photocopied the first two chapters. And she said, if this doesn't feel right for you, you don't have to take it. She said, but this is just what has come up for me. And I remember reading the first chapter and just being wild, wild to have my, oh, I think it was maybe the second chapter. That really spoke to me, but either one or two to have my story in in print written by somebody else. It was like somebody else wrote my story or my feelings or my perceptions or my judgments. Right. But it was what what exists on the inside of me 
when I'm not regulating myself, when I'm not trying to sanitize myself, when I'm not trying to create, rewrite the story. It was on, it was in this book. So I'm, I'm going to use this book to, to, so I'm, so I just finished the, I remember I started the episode by saying, uh, individuation, enterprising and, um, mothering while I'm, I'm leaving, um, enterprising. I'm struggling right now. That article from the New York times was how I confronted the enterprising. Now I'm going to tackle the mothering theme of this conversation. And I do need to start trying to get to it close up because we are running out of time. And I'm using the book Mothers Who Can't Love for the mothering. And I'm in chapter one. Okay. So I'm going to read a, uh, 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 do a little more reading. Um, so let's do this together. Okay. So the introduction starts off by uh, Dr. Ford quoting a, a client that she calls Heather. So this is Heather talking. I was on a business trip to Wisconsin. I had been cooped up inside all day and I wanted to get some air. The sun was out. So at the lunch break, even though it was pretty cold outside, I decided to take a short walk. I looked for the sunniest spot I could find, but you know it was the damnedest thing. It sure looked like the sun and it was bright like the sun, but there was absolutely no warmth coming from it. And this wave of sadness came over me. The sun was just like my mother. Um, so apparently Heather, her client comes to her trying to confront her own experience, her experiences with a mother and trying to make sure she doesn't repeat that as she becomes a mother. Okay. All right. I'm going to keep reading from Heather, you know, for the longest time, no, 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 I'm not going to read that. Let's get that. That's not as relevant. Okay, so here's Dr. Susan talking. It's it's the kind talking about Heather. It's the kind of upsetting story I've heard I've heard again and again from women who carry with them a legacy of pain, fear, and turmoil because of the profound emotional wounds inflicted by their mothers. In more than 35 years as a therapist working in a variety of clinical settings, I've seen large numbers of women like Heather who knowingly or unknowingly are caught in the damaging emotional orbit of the women who brought them up and are struggling to escape. They come to therapy sessions with anxiety and depression, relationship problems, lack of confidence, concerns about their ability to stand up for themselves or even to love. <clears throat> Some are able to make a connection between their relationship with their mothers and the difficulties in their lives. Others mention my mother's driving me crazy, but consider that to be too secondary. Excuse me. Consider that to be secondary to the issues that bring them to me. I'm talking as I'm reading as Dr. Ford. Often they're sorting through confusing mixed messages, hoping to prove themselves wrong about the pain that carry they carry from the past. That's perfect because you have a pain that exists. You have all of this, this stuff, this inner turmoil. And then all signs point to a particular relationship. And, but that relationship doesn't fit the, the social narrative. And we love the person. So when you love the person and the social narratives don't support that as a, that relationship as being problematic, then that's when you get into the mind games with yourself. Like, ah, that's not going on. 
Uh, so I really related to this part of the text. So I'm going to continue reading as Dr. Ford. I needed to hear more about the fears of Heather, the fears Heather was carrying into motherhood. So I asked her to tell me what she meant specifically by the coldness from my mom that she was so afraid of replicating with her own child. And this is what Heather said. It was like my mom had two sides. She gave me birthday parties. Sometimes she came to events at school. She could even be nice to my friends. But then she had this, she had this other side. And so Dr. Force says, what, and what was that like? And so Heather goes on and say, well, she criticized me an awful lot, but to tell you the truth, most of the time she ignored me like I wasn't even worth her time. I don't know. Maybe the nice things she did were all for show, but I'll tell you, I sure didn't get to feel safe around her. There was no real bond or kindness. I never felt important to her. I was some, I was just something she had to deal with when it suited her, but she was busy. You can't blame a single mom for being distracted. And so Dr. Ford writes, like so many women, Heather could speak candidly about how she'd been treated. Yet she grasped for ways to minimize the hurt and struggled to see her mother as something she rarely been loving. So you could talk about how it felt, but when you try to connect it to an event, that event usually is lowercase as significant. And then we minimize it and we wrestle with that. That's my my commentary, y'all. Okay, I'm going to pick a reading. Dr. Ford talks about what makes a good mother. I'm reading. A good mother is not expected to be perfect at a self, and self-sacrificing. I think I've read this part, this text to you before. A good mother is not expected to be perfect and self-sacrificing to the point of martyrdom. She has her own emotional baggage, her own scars, her own needs. She may have worked that she doesn't want to, to compromise. And there may be times when she's not available to her daughter. She may lose her temper or say or do things to her daughter that she regrets. But if her dominant behavior, some total, y'all, but if her dominant behavior engenders in her daughter a belief in her own values and nourishes her self-respect, confidence, and safety, that mother is doing a good job. Whether she's a wonderful mom or just good enough, she demonstrating she's demonstrating real love in a tangible, reliable way to her child. So basically, in this paragraph, she's saying that a good mom engenders in her daughter a sense of safety, a sense of confidence, self-respect. Um, and if a child grows up in the absence of that, I don't think it's safe to say that the mom is responsible, but I do think it's safe to interrogate. What was the experience between the person and the mom? So if you meet somebody who doesn't have really a lot of confidence, a lot of self-respect, and doesn't feel safe in the world, it doesn't mean they had poor mothering. But it is it is a window to question, to, in, to be curious about their mothering. I'm going to keep reading, you guys. That's not the kind of mothering, Heather. Uh, that's not the kind of mothering Heather and so many other women experience. For them, nourishing love and attention always came drop by drop. Behind closed doors, those intermittent splashes of warmth inevitably gave way to a reality that outsiders rarely saw. Their mothers tore them down, competed with them, icily, icily, icily ignored them. 
took credit for their achievements, failed to protect them, or even abused them. But love them? No, loving is consistent. Loving is a consistent overall behavior. And daughters like Heather were starved for his nurturing warmth. What I love about this paragraph is that it does acknowledge that there is, you do in that type of arrangement, you do experience warmth, but it comes intermittently, drop by drop, and it's in, and it's in the backdrop of these other things that are happening that are invisible. And I'm going to read that part again. Um, their mother's compete, competition, being ignored, having your achievements taken from you, not being protected, and even abused. So when you think about those 16 tactics that I talked about, that I read, when you have those things happening in the forefront, even though it's invisible to other people, but that's the primary, that's the primary timber of the relationship, then those drops of love, those drops of kindness, oftentimes that happens in public, it, it's confusing. All right, I'm going to keep reading. I'm almost done with this text, okay? The cost, here's the cost. Here's the, uh, here's the crime, if you will. If we're going to use the RICO charge, here's the crime of that of experiencing those tactics, those 16 tactics, as a pattern. Here is the crime. Uh, Dr. Ford doesn't call it a crime, but this is what she says. The high cost of missing a mother's love. The effects of growing up this way are painful and wounding. Girls define their emergent womanhood by identifying and bonding with their moms. But when that vital process is distorted because their mothers are abusive, critical, smothering, depressed, neglectful, or distant, they are left to struggle alone to find a solid sense of themselves and their place in the world. So through healthy mothering, daughters in particular, but there's there's literature out in the world that talks about sons too, y'all. But this book is focused on daughtering, and I'm a daughter, so, okay. Imagine that. That's why I'm going to be talking about daughters. But what I what I appreciate about that paragraph is that some of this is not about malice. So abuse, smothering, that's that can be considered malicious. But when a mom is depressed or dealing with some kind of emotional and mental uh, disturbance, the activities that come out of that are harmful all the same. It just may not be, again, this is me wrestling with the acts were bad, but the person isn't bad. It's me trying to delineate the two. All right. I'm going to keep reading. It really occurs to them that their mothers were not loving or even in extreme cases that they were malevolent. That's too hard to admit. See, you hear me? That's too hard to admit. Right from the text. That's too hard to admit. And allowing in that possibility produces acute anxiety in children whose survival is so closely tied to their vital caretaker. It's far safer for a child to believe that if there's something wrong between us, it's because there's something wrong with me. She makes 
sense of her mother's hurtful behavior by turning it into self-blame and feelings of inadequacy and badness, feelings that persist into adulthood no matter how accomplished she is or how much she's loved by others, including her own children. And I'm telling you, hot diggity dog, that, that, that right there is everything. That when you grow up in the absence of that type of positive relationship, you internalize something is wrong. You know something is wrong, but you psychologically are unable to say that the person who's responsible for caring for you is doing that because that would create the ultimate sense of unsafety. So what you do then is you internalize it and you say, I'm doing something wrong to cause this. Something is wrong with me. And that self-problematizing or problematizing the self, you grow into an adulthood with that type of identity that I'm the problem. And check this sentence out. What does she say? The feelings that persist into adulthood, no matter how accomplished she is and all the grand things that I've done doesn't take it doesn't easily take away that sense of I, there was a problem. There was a problem with me growing up because there was a problem with me. Now I will say in the last five years, I think the last 15, last five, 15 years, I started trying to attend to the matters of the heart because I, I had tried to demonize, I demonized my heart. I vilified my heart. I repressed my heart because my heart was telling me things that were confusing for my mind, right? There was a, there was a mismatch between my heart and what my mind, my brain, my logic was telling me. So I suppressed my heart. I vilified my heart. Well, 15 years ago, I stopped doing that. I started trying to attend to that mushy center, if you will. All right. And then five years ago, I started really, with this book, really starting to come to terms with how I have acted out of a repressed heart, of a, of, of a malignant heart, and how it has caused a problem for me. All right. So that, it's just, it's just fascinating. Um, I'm going to close out. Excuse me. I'm going to have just a little bit more of this text to read and then I'm going to be done. A little girl who was criticized or ignored or abused or stifled by an unloving mother becomes an adult who tells herself she'll never be good enough or lovable enough, never smart or pretty or acceptable enough to deserve, to deserve success and happiness. Because if you really were worthy of respect and affection, a voice inside whispers, your mother would have given them to you. That's deep, y'all. And if you were really worthy of love, respect, and happiness, your own mom would have given it to you. So if you didn't get it from her, that means you weren't worthy of it. All right. Um, and you guys, I also have talked about being on the receiving end of being told I was unloving, being told I was not pretty, being told I was unattractive, in, a, in being told I was unattractive inside and out. And the only reason why I was loved was because my person was obligated to love me. That is a direct quote that I heard, right? So that wasn't even me inferring it. <laughs> That's a direct quote that I had to live with. 
All right, I'm gonna, one last paragraph. If you were that little girl, the daughter of a mother who couldn't give you the love you needed to so much, it's likely that much like Heather, you now go through your days with a, a cavernous, cavernous, cavernous gap in your confidence. A gap in your confidence. How diggity dog. A sense of emptiness and sadness. You're never truly comfortable in your own skin. You may not trust your ability to love. And you can't stop fully, step fully into your life until you heal that gaping mother wound. So that's the mothering portion of this reflection because, you know, when you're talking about, a, like, as I try to use the RICO as this framework of these small events, you have to have the grand, you have to have the purpose of the intention, the main objective. Now, the question is, what caused that to happen? We sit like I'm like it's not saying that the person is intentionally trying to be malicious, but those events happen all the same. Why? Why did those events happen to have that type of sum total? And I'm going to read. I'm into the the last theme: individuation. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping it up. Hold on. I don't believe I've ever I've never read so much text to you all, but hopefully you heard me. You already heard the relevance of the text because as I was reading it, I was able to stop and go, okay, let me expound upon this. And I think two weeks ago, without having the text, it was just, I needed an anchor. I needed to be anchor in the discussion. And without having the anchor, it was just really difficult. So hopefully, I know I've given a lot of anchor text, but hopefully this has helped a little bit. Hold on a second. So in another article that I'm not going to read, but I I do have it, I do share it for the November newsletter, um, is uh, about when daughters are raised by a narcissistic mother. I don't like that. I don't like that term narcissistic because what I love about the book that I just read from, there are five types of mothers who can't love. Narcissistic mother is only one type of mother. And so I like this, this book better because it just really puts that mother in a more human, human, humanistic light, a wholeness where narcissistic, it just feels, I I don't, that doesn't resonate with me. All right, I'm going to move on. So the article that I read talked about one of the, the problems with when when a narcissistic mom is raising a child, a, particularly a daughter, they see that daughter as an extension of themselves. And when that daughter tries to become her own person, that mother perceives that as an attack and the mother will counterattack, will counterattack and will try to do, try to keep that daughter as the extension of themselves. And then when that as an extension of itself, if you, if that mother sees themselves in a toxic way, then what that mother will do is cleanse themselves by taking the, the, the self hate and transferring onto the daughter and then, and then having issues with the daughter as a way of cleansing the self. And I call that restorative justice in, in education. This was called restorative justice that when a conflict happens in the classroom or in the school, it's not enough to just punish the student. There needs to be a, a process where that student can be made whole again 
for whatever happened to the student and the student can help bring that environment back to wholeness because of the breach. And so I think my theory is that when a parent has grown up and has not had their own cleansing, their own healing, and then they become a parent, they do the cleansing by proxy, by casting onto their child all of the negative feelings that they feel. They cast it onto the child as a way of cleansing. So it's a, if I had time, I would read to you from an article called scapegoating. But if you go read the scape, scapegoating phenomenon, that's what happens. All right, you guys. What is an individuation? I'm going to, I'm reading this article from a um, website called Very Well Mind. And that's individuation is when, uh, let me read the article. <laughs> um, Okay, what is individuation? When discussing human development, individuation refers to the process of forming a stable personality. As a person individuates, they gain a clearer sense of self that is separate from their parents and others around them. Carl Jung used the term individuation extensively in his work on personality development. This process of developing a separate identity is an important goal of adolescence, but it is something that continues throughout a person's life. In Carl Jung's work, he suggests that this was a self-realization process. Throughout life, people are prone to losing touch with certain aspects of their true selves. Through individuation, they are able to integrate these aspects of themselves with all of their new learnings and experiences that they gain throughout life. And what I love about this, first of all, it talks about Carl Jung, kind of the impetus to the work around Myers-Briggs. Um, so he's a big name. <laughs> and so it's cool to see him talking about individuation. And that makes sense, which is one of the reasons why I have really embraced Myers-Briggs and personality theory, because I needed to, uh, I needed a way of claiming my identity and claiming my sense of self in a way that was pure and not pathologized because of someone's, someone else's woundedness. Okay. All right. Signs of individuation. I'm not going to read the article, but I'm going to just tell you, according to the article, these are the signs of individuation. Let me read this one paragraph and then I'll list, I'll read the list. Individuation occurs throughout life, but it is an important part of the tween, teen, and young adult years. When individuation occurs, number one, people seek privacy. Number two, they focus on themselves more than others. Number three, they rebel against the family or cultural norms. Four, they personalize their appearance. And I tell you, what I, I, God, I wish I had time. Maybe I'll do this in a part two, maybe, or a, a YouTube post reflection. But those are the things that the article says you go through as a teen or tween. And that's the time period right before teenage years. And when I talked to my person, when we finally had a, a honest conversation, when I turned 40 and my, my, you know, my person admitted to experience treating me a certain way. And she said it's because of what I did to her when I was at that age. It was an assault to her. It was a violation to her when I was becoming my own person. And she accused me of not wanting to spend time with her, not listening to her anymore, um, me wanting to be off to myself, me forming my own opinions, right? All of those things that were a natural development were an assault to my person so deeply that that um it turned into a pattern of trying to either punish me for being separate 
or trying to bring me back in to try to control that process. So that was the intent of all of those small, uh, those 16, 14 of the 16 tactics, I believe were about this confession that she made that I assaulted her by my own individuation. And what I think, and I'm going to close here, I think that I'm going through another season right now, age 52, and I've been in this season, I would say for 10 years, but it's it's pretty capstone right now. I can see it in, in two conversations that I've had recently because I'm trying to meet new people. I'm in this, I am in a heightened individuation process, season of my life. What I, why I think that it is, I think I'm going through a, a healthy individuation. I had to, first of all, really confront that I was tethered to some unhealthy ways, right? And then I had to become, I had to really learn what it means to be me. And what I'm now doing is I'm building muscle around what it means to be me so that I can go out into the world and have healthy relationships with me in those relationships, in the healthy version of me. And I can't do it a moment before then. And so I would love to come back and just talk about how this individuation process, me kind of going back to reclaim it, how it's manifesting right now. Um, but it does look like um, isolation. It does look like me spending time focusing on me <laughs> more so than the other person. I don't think I'm doing it as much. I really think I'm starting to come out of it, which is why I can give more attention to try to date. But um, I really think that I've been in this second individuation season of my life. So, so anyway, you guys, um, so those were the three articles, individuation, enterprising and mothering. And I think for, for me, there are three things here. First of all, understanding that there is an enterprise. There is a sum total of an event for the grand event, this grand event of, of me being an extension of somebody who needs me as an extension of her who and who is unable to talk it out and you you know i have i have to do this in a part two but i'm currently being challenged by why i will not do self-advocacy which feels really hard for me because as a as a type eight i absolutely advocate for myself but in intimate relationships, I have to learn what that means because I've learned that to advocate for myself either falls on deaf ears or it turns into chaos or rage or the person self-harming themselves. So I have learned that if I love a person, I cannot advocate for my needs because that person is either going to attack me do some, or attack themselves or harm themselves or threaten to kill themselves. And that's the history that I have. And so I've learned to just be silent. And so that's coming up for me. And I really just really want to spend some more time processing that part of it. But in terms of this particular RICO case, this RICO framework, it really just helps to say that there's an enterprise. There's a pattern. There's an objective. There are actors. And there's liability. There are victims. And that brings all of that together. There's intent, there's an outcome, there are actors, and there are victims. 
And this RICO case helps to show how these small, isolated events that aren't really small, they're still criminal, but our society has a way of saying, well, given the benefit of the doubt, well, maybe that wasn't intentional. But when you put those together with other actually benign events, it comes together to tell one big story of corruption. I'm not saying the Donald Trump situation is, but I'm saying that that's what that case is trying to illustrate. And that is a good metaphor for those of us who have experienced behind the scenes violence so much that it messes with our ability to say, did that thing that I experienced, did it happen with by that person? Was it bad? Were those events bad? Were those small, insignificant, lowercase s events, were they actually more significant than I have allowed myself to believe? And then if I believe it, so what? So what? I don't have that so what yet. Um, I don't, I don't have it. And I, oh, I know there was one more thing I wanted to read to you. Oh, there was one more thing I wanted to read to you. I'll have to do it in a, another section, but there's a chapter in this at the end where this care, a client for Dr. Susan client, her name is Deborah and she, um, her mother gets diagnosed with cancer. So after years of healing and setting healthy boundaries with this mother that was hurtful to her and after learning and having this healthy lifestyle, her mom gets cancer and it obscures all of that health healing development. And my heart coach recently had me read, go to the end of this book to read that chapter because I had not read it yet just to see the, the profound parallel of this book and what I'm experiencing. You guys, if this reflection had any value, please give it a heart. If my moving about is causing randomness in you, I would love to hear it. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. And of course, please take this link to share with any participant who might be able to relate. Let me give an assignment. What is your RICO, what is your RICO case? What is something that you've experienced that's hidden and it's isolated and it looks benign on the surface, but when you bring it all together in a sum total, what is the, the, the uppercase significance of it all? You guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until I come back, be well. Bye.